of chapter 23. Uh, once again, it's, it's a bit of a longer reading that I uh, hope will be well counterbalanced by the length of the sermon so that all things uh, zero out uh, evenly. Second uh, Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedida, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighteenth year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters, and to the builders, and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight, who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Achbor, and Shaphan, and Esaiah went to Haldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who has sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place." And they brought back word to the king. 
Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women, were hang- where the women wove hangings for the, for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Himnon, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars, and cut down the ashram, and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, the altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel uh, had made, provoking the Lord to anger. 
he did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book, of, in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of His great wrath, by which His anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked Him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo, and brought him to Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz the son of Josiah, and anointed him, and made him king in his father's place. So far, the reading of God's word. As we reflect on all that we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 82, stanzas 1 through 3. The uh, verses that we'll be focusing on in particular as a way of a a window into the chapters that we read are, are verses 26 and 27 of 2 Kings chapter 23. I'll just read those two verses again. After all of the reforms of Josiah, verse 26 reads, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of His great wrath, by which His anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked Him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. So far, the reading of the text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's pretty hard to decide, isn't it, whether these are the best two chapters in the book of Kings or the worst two chapters. They're the best two chapters in the sense that Josiah is the best king that we've ever seen, even better than than Hezekiah, uh, even better than David. Uh, Verse 2 of chapter 22 gives him higher praise than has been given to any king before him, saying he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. This is the best you can hope for. Uh, Nowhere is that said of any other king. 
it's an allusion, in fact, back to Deuteronomy 5, which described what the kings were supposed to be like. Uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 32, uh, and God says uh, through Moses, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Well, here we have a king who actually meets that description. Uh, and, and even more, you read the description of Josiah at the end of chapter 23 in verse 25, uh, where it says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Uh, this is, in that sense, the best two chapters uh, that you'll find in the book of Kings, the, the reform under uh, Josiah. And, and there was, there was no reformation in Jerusalem like the one done under Josiah. Uh, all the things that we read about are truly amazing, not only the, the, the kind of ungodly stuff that he seems to pull out of the temple and, and the homes of all these different people, uh, which is shocking in, in their own right, uh, but the, the scale of that reform, that he took it seriously. Uh, you, you think of what this must have been like for the church of that day, the church that was waiting, hoping for, for God to bring his promises to fulfillment, uh, and uh, waiting for the Passover to be celebrated again. You think of that, the, the first time the Passover was celebrated in Jerusalem since the days of the judges. Uh, what, a, what an amazing time it would have been for the church of that day. And that's why these verses, verses 26 and 27, just, just hit us like a ton of bricks after reading all that, that Josiah has done. At the end of the day, uh, God still says, I'm not turning from my wrath. How is that possible? And that's what makes these the worst chapters in the book of Kings. Because if everything that Josiah did isn't enough to avert God's wrath, whatever will be. Uh, to know that after all this ref reformation, uh, nothing could be done to save Judah. Uh, that's, it's a terrible uh, judgment to hear. And, and once again, now imagine this from the perspective of that church that, that lived in that day, waiting for this time, finally seeing this time, and then hearing at the end of it, God's still not going to turn from his wrath. What a shocking uh, prophecy that is. So what are we to make of, of these chapters? Well, I, I think in the first place, the, these chapters provide us with a good opportunity to, to ask the question, if Reformation does not succeed in, in, in saving the church or saving the country, is it still worth it? It's a good question to ask, because that was Josiah's world. Uh, Reformation was, was large-scale, was effective, but still didn't save his country. Was it still worth it, then, to go through all that work? Uh, it, it's a good time to, to, to reflect on, on, on this fact, particularly in our own country as well. I've made the point before. Uh, it, it seems that in, in the Old Testament, when a nation or a culture reaches the point of child sacrifice, that's the point where God says, I've had enough, I'm wiping them out. That happened with the Canaanites, that happened with the Israelites in the northern kingdom, and, and that seems to have happened with Manasseh uh, as well. And, and the troubling thing about that, brothers and sisters, is that's happening 
happened in our country as well. After four million children killed in abortion, we've reached that stage as a country where we can now wonder, will God ever save this country? The pattern we've seen in Scripture is when they get to that point, God doesn't save them anymore. Uh, and so it's worth, worth pointing out, uh, it may not be possible for our nation, our country of Canada, to still be saved. Uh, it, it's worth wondering, would God, could God even spare this nation? Uh, would it even be right if, if Sodom and Gomorrah didn't escape judgment, if Jerusalem didn't escape judgment in Josiah's day, or once again in the, day, uh, in the days of the Lord Jesus, if Rome did not escape judgment, uh, how can God indeed, how, how should God even uh, allow our nation to escape the judgment? Uh, and so, if Manasseh's 55-year reign, reaching the point of, of child sacrifice, brought Israel or brought Judah past the point of saving, the question then stands before us, is reformation, is reform still worth it? That's the question we want to uh, think about. Now, our text tells us Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and it gives us a very, very positive assessment of this king. Uh, that being said, we should recognize reforms didn't even start happening until the 18th year of his reign. So it's not like it happened right away. Uh, for the first 10 or so, of course, he was probably under stewards for between the ages of 8 and 18. He was probably under stewards, so we can, yeah, we can pass the buck uh, in or he can pass the buck in that, in that regard. But even then, it's another eight or so years from 18 to around 26 or so when he's reigning and still nothing's happening. Still no reform. Still idolatry being, being, being performed throughout the land. And we can hardly blame him either, this, this young king Josiah. This is all he knew. Uh, like, like someone who comes to Christianity later in life, Josiah starts from behind. We assume, of course, he, uh, he must have been a believer. Well, why would he? His, his grandfather was Manasseh. His father was Ammon. Why would Josiah, uh, why would we assume that he knew anything about the Lord? Uh, in fact, Chronicles, uh, the book of Chronicles tells us it was in his eighth year as king, so that's when he was around 16 years old, uh, that he began to seek after the Lord. So it seems like he, he didn't even know the Lord before he was 16 years old. Uh, and, and so then what happens two years, or, or what happens, uh, sorry, 10 years later, in his 18th year is, is an outworking of his, uh, his beginning to search after the Lord. Uh, and it took some time, and, and we should be reminded there of, of God's patience with, with Josiah, uh, dealing with him during those first years when he wasn't the kind of man he should have been, uh, when he wasn't the king that God had called him to be. Uh, he started out for all intents and purposes as a pagan, and God is patient. God is working on him until he reaches that point where, where he, he encounters the word of God and his life turns around. Uh, so then, in his 18th year, at, at around 26 years old, he sends Shaphan, his secretary, to begin repairing the temple of the Lord. 
And we can only imagine what condition the temple of the Lord was in after 55 years of Manasseh and another two years of of Ammon. Uh, The fact that he's arranging for carpenters, builders, uh, masons, stonemasons, means that the temple was clearly in major disrepair. He's not just fixing the plaster on on the walls. This This is a big project. The temple is in bad disrepair. Now, as they were going about those repairs, uh, someone discovered buried in a back room a scroll which turned out to be the book of the law. There's a lot of debate about what exactly uh, is, is, is included in that, but most scholars agree it's at least Deuteronomy, uh, if not the entire first five books of, of Moses. And again, it's not, it's not hard to imagine how under Manasseh, the book of the law disappeared. Uh, it was supposed to have been kept in the ark, uh, right in, in, the, in the center of, uh, of the temple, or rather beside the ark, right next to the ark. The, the book of the law was to be uh, kept. Uh, and it was supposed to have been read in public every week. And in fact, the king was supposed to have made a personal copy. It was supposed to be the king's first assignment when he was made king, as he would uh, write for himself a personal copy of, of the book of the law. Uh, but it's not hard to imagine how that disappeared under Manasseh. Uh, after all, a book that condemns idolatry, a book that condemns false prophets, uh, a book that uh, commands uh, Israel to put to death those who entice the nation to idolatry, it's not hard to imagine how that was not Manasseh's favorite book uh, and how that book uh, disappeared. Uh, particularly when we think of Manasseh as one who was famous for killing the prophets who spoke against him. Uh, so in, in, in some 50 years, the, the word of God disappears from public life in Jerusalem. Uh, so the people uh, repairing the temple, they find this scroll, and they gave it to the high priest Hilkiah, who read it and who thought, you know, Josiah is going to need to see this. Uh, so the word of God is, is then brought to Josiah. And when Josiah read it, He was absolutely devastated. And you think of Deuteronomy, the the curses uh, that are are, uh, written out there at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, the sort of things that were prohibited and the sort of things that God said would happen to a nation uh, if they did those those things. Uh, Well, those things had been going on for half a century already in Jerusalem. Uh, And and here's the, the, the beautiful thing. We see Josiah humble himself. Such a precious word, uh, that that one word. He he humbled himself before the Lord, before God's word. And what a beautiful thing that is for a king to humble himself before the word of God. How how, how much we should long for that to happen in our own country as well. What would it it be like if our, our prime ministers, our government officials, humbled themselves before the word of God? How good would that be? Uh, uh, you think here of the words of Isaiah 66, uh, where God says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Well, that's what Josiah was. He heard the words of God and he, he trembled. He humbled himself. He tore his clothes in repentance. And then he acted. He acted upon that repentance. Uh, 
Uh, he sends a delegation of five men to this uh, Huldah, the prophetess, uh, who lived in Jerusalem in, in the second quarter, wherever that was. It's not clear where exactly uh, that was. And in case you're wondering, what's the deal with a prophetess here? We may as well get that out of the way. Uh, why do we have a, a female prophet? Is that something we should be concerned about? Uh, well, this is far from an exception in the Old Testament, uh, or even in the New Testament, for that matter. There are a number of prophetesses in the Bible both Old and, and New Testament. Uh, and most of them were, were, were righteous women who were filled with the Spirit of God who spoke the words of God. Uh, we should recognize there's a distinction between those offices of leadership, uh, such, as, such as the offices of pastor, elder, deacon in the church that God calls men to fill, uh, that are reserved for, for men. And, and the special offices uh, during those, those special times in history, offices of inspiration, where God just chooses individuals to be the mouthpiece for his words, uh, and, and oftentimes the most unlikely uh, individuals, precisely to show it was God speaking through them. Uh, so there are a number of prophetesses that you, you can read about in Scripture. You think of uh, not just Huldah, uh, Deborah was also a prophetess. In the New Testament, you have uh, Anna, uh, the prophetess, uh, in, in the first chapters of Luke, as well as a number of, of others. Uh, it's not an unusual thing. Uh, so uh, the principle here, while we're not to, to invert the created order by putting women in offices of leadership, God will choose whom he will for offices of inspiration in those moments in history when he chooses to do so. Uh, well, we'll get to spend a bit more time thinking about that uh, uh, next week, uh, Sunday in the afternoon, as we'll look at the gift of, of prophecy in, in some more detail. So anyway, that's, that's Huldah the prophetess. Josiah sends five, uh, a delegation of five men to this prophetess uh, who who. who who ask her, essentially, what shall we do? What's to be done about uh, these, uh, this book? Uh, and she has two basic messages for Josiah. The first half of her, her, her prophecy is, uh, unfortunately, it's a little too late. Uh, Judah is past the point of repentance, past the point of, of turning the judgment away. Uh, so she says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. That's a sobering message to hear, again, particularly in our day, in our culture, uh, especially in our culture where we're so used to thinking, well, God just has to forgive. You know, if people, are, if people say they're sorry, God just has to forgive. Uh, well, not necessarily. God doesn't have to forgive anyone. Uh, forgiveness is an act of God's grace that is unmerited, undeserved, unobliged grace. And so here Judah comes to that point of repentance, and God says, as far as the nation's concerned, it's too late. That nation's going to be judged. Now, the second message from, from Huldah the prophetess is for Josiah personally. Uh, in verse 19, she says, Because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and its inhabitants, uh, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster 
I'll bring upon this place. So, so while Judah will be judged, uh, Huldah's message for Josiah is, you at least will die in peace. Now it's interesting, uh, when we compare, we, we saw this in Hezekiah comparing him to David, and how both David and Hezekiah, when they were faced with personal judgment or the judgment of their nation, they accepted the judgment of the nation uh, because at least they themselves were going to get away. Josiah is different than both Hezekiah and David. Josiah humbles himself before the word of the Lord and tries nonetheless to save his nation. Uh, He's not like David or Hezekiah saying, well, as long as I'm off the hook, let God do what he wants with this nation. Instead, Josiah embarks on a campaign of reform. You know, sometimes you hear the, the, the expression, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? Uh, it's, it's, uh, some people say that with regards to this earth, uh, because this earth is going uh, to hell anyway, the, the assumption is. So, so why even try to fix it? Uh, well, that's not Josiah's attitude to his nation, even though he is told that nation's going to be judged. Uh, that's not what Josiah did. Instead, he embarks on the most radical campaign of reform that the country had ever seen. And that's what chapter 23 is, is all about. We read about everything Josiah did, breaking down altars, uh, uh, crushing the idols to dust, defiling sacred places, uh, the, the various high places. He defiled them to permanently remove them from, from use. Uh, he burned the bones of dead priests on them. He, he tears down the living quarters of the cult prostitutes. Uh, he rips out sections in the king's palace that were used for illicit sacrifice. I'm not sure what's What's more, uh, whether we should be more grateful at all the work Josiah is doing or more just shocked at at all the stuff he keeps finding. Uh, I think we're supposed to experience both emotions as we read about these uh, reforms. Uh, And then he even goes up north into Bethel, uh, where where Jeroboam had set up his calf worship, and he defiles that altar. It's outside of Judah's territory, but he goes as far as Israel to say, I'm going to destroy that idolatry as well. So the question stands before us, why? Why did Josiah do it all? After hearing the prophecy from Huldah that it's too late, why didn't he just accept that at least he was going to die in peace? Well, I don't know. It could be. It could be that Josiah had the heart of, uh, of David, uh, where if you remember David and Hezekiah, both of them said, you never know what God will do. Uh, when, when they received uh, words of, uh, of judgment from God. Uh, it could be that that was Josiah's attitude with respect to the nation. Though God has judged them, you never know. Uh, that, that's a fair response. Uh, uh, so perhaps that's what motivated Josiah to pursue reform. Uh, if so, it, it didn't work. Uh, just like uh, David's uh, prayers, David's fasting for the child of Bathsheba, uh, where he, he, he prayed and fasted for seven days, and it didn't work, and he still said, hey, you never know. It could be that was Josiah's motivation uh, as well. Uh, one way or another, uh, verse 26 still stands as a conclusion to this chapter. It didn't work. Uh, still the Lord did not turn away. So once again, it leaves us with this question, then why bother? Why bother pursuing reform in a country that's under God's judgment.
I'll say it again, and I say it with, with trembling, and I hope with all my heart that I'm wrong, but, but, but uh, it's hard to see how God could or even should spare our nation after all the nations that God has destroyed for things less evil than our own. Uh, and to be clear, we can, we can even say that as, as, as optimists, uh, as biblically grounded optimists, believing that, yes, Jesus Christ is building his church, establishing his kingdom. The church is going to keep uh, growing. The, the world is going to keep being changed by the gospel. Yet our nation might still perish. That could happen. That might and that seems to be uh, God's purpose. Uh, we, we can recognize a nation that's forsaken the word of God. Uh, there's no question that in, in the last 70 years or so, our nation has forsaken the word of God. Uh, and just as we believe in the advance of the kingdom, in the growth of God's kingdom, so we also recognize any nation, any king that stands in the way of God's kingdom will certainly be crushed by King Jesus. As Jesus says in, in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not withstand it. That means if our country performs the role of the gates of Hades, seeking to withstand the church and the kingdom of God, it will be crushed. Uh, Psalm 2 as well uh, it says, Be warned, ye kings, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in his way. Uh, so as much as we might recognize that God is doing mighty things in this earth, growing his kingdom, building his church, yet we also should tremble for our nation, because it stands in the way of the Son of God. Uh, so we can ask the question, will Christ spare us? Should Christ even spare us? Uh, perhaps there's, there's some comfort in, uh, in, in the uh, uh, promise that God once made to Abraham as they were looking over the valley of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God promised uh, he would spare the those cities, if there were ten righteous people uh, within them. Uh, Unfortunately for Sodom and Gomorrah, those ten couldn't be found. Uh, Perhaps the church functions in our country as those ten righteous people that are left in in, in the country. Uh, Perhaps that's that's the only reason God hasn't judged this country already. Uh, Even if that's the case, uh, we have to ask the question, What's left for us then as a church in a nation that is under the judgment of God? What's amazing about Josiah is he pursues reform anyways, even though he knew it was likely going to end in judgment. It didn't save the nation, and he was told it wasn't going to save the nation, yet he pursued it with all his might nonetheless. There's something very, very profound and very appropriate for our time in that principle as well. We might draw, indeed, a couple of principles from that. In the first place, God calls us to be the church, to live in the present as the church, as the voice of God in this nation, to do what is right here and now in the present, regardless of what the future might bring. Uh, To put it another way, uh, even if judgment does come upon our country, uh, even if our nation has passed the point of God's mercy, that still would not mean that that, that working for revival, working for reform, would not be worth it. Uh, We're not called to live in the future. We're called to live in the present. We're called to be salt and light right now, 
in the present. Uh, we're, we're called to, to lead this country towards the ways of Christ right now. And even if that's all we get, that, that there might be some revival, that there might be some reform here in the present that doesn't save our nation, would that not still be worth it? Uh, Martin Luther was once asked, uh, what would you do if, if, you, if you knew that Jesus Christ was going to come back tomorrow? Uh, and his answer was, I'd plant a tree. I'd plant a tree. Why would you plant a tree, Martin Luther? Because that's what God calls me to do today, to build his earth, to care for his earth today. That's a good answer, and that seems to be the answer Josiah would give as well. We're not called to live in tomorrow. We're called to live in today. Let God take care of tomorrow. Uh, We're called to serve God in the present and to serve God with what he gives us here and now in the present and leave tomorrow in his hands. Uh, So perhaps that's what Josiah was also thinking. Even though I can't change what happens tomorrow, uh, and even if my nation is indeed past the point of God's mercy, uh, perhaps by God's mercy I might be able to accomplish some good right here in the present. Uh, And and even if the judgment is not postponed, uh, but if our, our labors for reform and revival bear Uh, bear fruit just in our generation, and then the judgment comes, would that not still be worth it to save this generation, even if we can't save the next? Uh, And what if our labors don't bear fruit? It's a question we should also ask. What if our labors don't bear fruit? Uh, There's a second principle that we can learn here from the life of, of Josiah. We have no guarantee that our work for reform will actually achieve the desired result. We might give ourselves wholeheartedly to the work of Christ, laboring for, for the, the, the gospel of Christ, uh, sending ARPA to work tirelessly in, in Ottawa for, for the change of, of, of our country, and it might be at the end of the day that, that we don't succeed, that it comes to nothing. Would it then still be worth it? Well, Josiah would say yes. Now, the truth is, Christians in different cultures and different ages uh, are used by God in different ways. Uh, some, some Christians will spend their entire lives laboring uh, for the gospel and the glory of God and see nothing of it in their lifetime. And in a future generation, uh, the, the benefits of their labors will, will be seen. Uh, Some others uh, have the privilege of being there for the harvest uh, that that previous generations had sown. Uh, They get to be there for the harvest uh, and and see the gospel going out, see the church growing. And there are still others whose lives will not be used to sow any seed that's going to bear fruit in their country, uh, nor to reap a harvest, but simply whose faithful life and death will be used by God to serve as a witness to the country at the day of judgment. There there are many uh, unknown and and untold stories of martyrs whose lives did not bear fruit on this earth, but whose lives will be used by God to be a witness on the last day. Uh, uh, You think of the, the, the thousands of Christian men and women in Jerusalem 
in the days of the earliest church, whose lives, whose sacrifices didn't save their city, uh, or those in Rome, or, or those in, in, the, in the so-called iron mission fields of Europe in the 400s and 600s. Uh, how many untold stories uh, of men and women, some who bore fruit, uh, some who sowed uh, what was later reaped, and some who simply died as a witness to God, as a witness to the truth of God against their country, against their people on the day of judgment. Sometimes that may be God's purpose uh, for our life and our death. Uh, You don't get to decide what Christ will do with your life. Uh, That's not in your hands. But you can follow God's call in the present with the Spirit's uh, Spirit's power as Josiah did, or as as, as Josiah did, uh, repeating the words of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What God does with that will be in the Lord's hands. Uh, you think of how the earliest Jewish Christians had to wrestle with that same question, preaching, in a, preaching the gospel in, in, in Judea and in Jerusalem, in a land that they knew that Jesus himself had said would fall under God's judgment. Uh, you, you think of the words of Paul as he cries out, uh, what would I give for my nation to come to repentance? I would, I would be willing for me to be accursed uh, and, 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 and removed from Christ that they might be saved. And he labored for that end, uh, and yet didn't save his city. You don't get to choose what God will do with your life's work. You do get to follow the Spirit's leading in serving God wherever he puts you. Uh, And so if we were to discover uh, that all the work of ARPA in Ottawa uh, that we support working tirelessly for political change, we're working for the transformation of our our government, uh, but it might come to nothing. If that in God's providence is God's purpose, uh, would that work be a waste? Well, Josiah's life says no. Uh, The scriptures say no. Uh, Even if it doesn't lead to lasting change, even if it doesn't get our nation out from under God's judgment, uh, even if it doesn't sow seeds for change that are used in a later generation, uh, it still stands as a witness against our land that God will use on the last day. That's God's call to decide what to do with our life's work. It's not up to us to decide what God will do with our labors. It is our calling to be faithful, to work, and to give our lives in God's kingdom, uh, whether that's within our homes, within our communities, within our church, and within our nation, and let God do with it what he will. so, so reformation, even if it doesn't last forever, is still worth it because serving God is always the right thing to do. And one last word, uh, real briefly, as we look at Josiah's life. Uh, as we reflect on, on these chapters, uh, we should also think of the larger, the larger story, the story of God's redemption. What now? What happens now? Uh, Josiah, uh, the, the son of David, is being told, you and, or, or your line and your city are going to be extinguished. What of the purposes of God? Uh, what will God do? Uh, and, and what we want to recognize is, even though there is judgment, there's always God's purpose of salvation on the far side of judgment.
Uh, Judah, yes, was past the point of being saved. That nation was going to be extinguished. What Manasseh did could not be undone. And yet, on the far side of judgment, we see that God still has plans. God still has purposes for salvation. Uh, jumping forward uh, many chapters, we'll see that, that, that exiles, uh, a small, small group of exiles, return to that land. A new Judah will one day again be built in, in that land. And, and so, yes, the nation as it was in Josiah's day was gone forever or would soon be gone uh, forever. Uh, even after the exiles returned, they didn't return to the same old nation that they left behind. That old identity was gone but God would build a new thing among them, something greater. Uh, indeed, God was setting the stage for the coming of Christ. Uh, God's purposes are never thwarted. They're never thwarted, not by national judgments, uh, not by communal judgments, not by the extinguishing of a city. God's purposes are not thwarted. Rather, those judgments are oftentimes the very groundwork upon which God builds for salvation on the far side of judgment. When he tears down, he tears down to build up something better in its place. That's comforting for us in our country as well. If God does tear this country down, if we indeed are too far gone as a nation to be saved, uh, of course we will still work, as we've just seen. We'll still work for reform. But even if we're too far gone, God's still sovereign. Jesus is still king. And what he tears down, he tears down in order to build something better up on the far side of judgment. Now, Josiah himself could hardly have imagined what God still had in store for his line, for the line of David. Uh, the judgment, yes, was worse, worse even than he could have imagined. Uh, but at the same time, the salvation was far better than ever he could have imagined. And that's the ultimate purpose God always had his eyes fixed on, the coming of Christ, the real salvation that was needed more than any other, not just a political reform in Judah, uh, but a, a reform of hearts, a reform of lives, and salvation from the thing we most need saving from, not our, our enemies around us, but rather the sin that lives within us. And so we, we see in Josiah's life, too, that even though he, he only sees darkness, he doesn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, there is light on the other side, and it's a great, bright, uh, glorious light. It's the coming of Christ himself. Uh, Christ's purpose is not just to, to save one nation, to save Jerusalem, which probably would have been enough in Josiah's eyes if he had just saved Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, that's his, that was his life's purpose. God's eyes were, were on something much bigger, the salvation of the entire world. Uh, and so this chapter should also serve as a reminder to us that if our nation is headed for judgment, Christ will still do mighty things on the far side of, of, of that judgment. His eyes are fixed not just on, on this nation, but on the world and on building his kingdom throughout this, this globe. Uh, so what's that leave for us? That leaves our calling right in front of us. Follow Christ. Uh, do the work of Christ. Rest in the goodness and, and, the, and the mercy of Christ. Give our lives to the service of the kingdom of Christ. And know that Christ will do good. That Christ will bring salvation to this earth, even if it means through hard times in this country. Amen.